Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Make It Kind. M.I.P. With Massimella Mark Thompson. Make It Kind. Get woke. Ladies and gentlemen, our conversation today here on Make It Plain is long overdue. A brother who I have developed a great deal of admiration for, and so have you. His His writing style is very unique and extraordinary and he's very serious but he's also very humorous we'll talk a little bit about that with him today too how he does it how why he even writes the way he writes he is a self-described world renowned white peopleologist getter and doer of it never reneged never will and the last real negus alive and I guess I'm pronouncing that right. I mean, that's how it's, it's yes. pronunciation yes. in the dictionary. And for those who don't know, a negus is a, a king, an emperor as in Ethiopia and, and Amharic. So he's the last of the great Ethiopian kings. And he joins us today on Make It Plain. Michael Harriet is here. Hey, brother. Welcome. How are you, man? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? Just fine, man. It's an honor to have you. And... um um really, as I said, have a lot of admiration of a lot of the things you've been doing the past couple of years and a lot of the writing you've been sharing with us. First of all, um, family, loved ones, everybody safe and healthy in this pandemic? Yes, yes. Everybody is doing well. Everybody is locked up in the house and I'm telling them not to go anywhere. So they're doing well. Amen. All right. That's good. So let's start this way. You actually interviewed, you had a one-on-one with the 44th president, brother, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah, I still consider him like the last president. But uh, yeah, so it was like I wanted to, I want to say like I had the juice or I finagled an interview, but uh, I just got an email and said, hey, you want to ask Barack Obama some questions? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so I did. Um, 
he was gracious enough to answer them. Uh, and, you know, I think you can tell that he was, you know, he has this cadence and this talking style that comes through uh, even in the written form. So I was just happy to ask him some of the questions that, you know, I thought I've thought about it and I've always wondered why no one asked him uh, and I had the chance to do it. And I admire, I mean, you even took it there in terms of asking him what he felt was his greatest accomplishment for the black community, right? Right, right. Um, and that's something like, even in his answer, I kind of wanted him to go deeper because like I could have listed more things than he did, right? Uh, with, you know, in this space where we're talking about student loan debt and, you know, wage inequality. And I often point out in the list of things that he's done is he sued every major banking uh, company in America. He sued the car, uh, the, the car financing industry um, because they were discriminating against black borrowers and charging black people higher interest rates. And that's just one of the many things that he's done. And I've just wanted him to kind of, you know, pat himself on the back. But he basically said, look, I help all Americans and I did some stuff that will help black people. But, uh, you know, I was just happy to have him answer that question because it seems as if, you know, you hear that a lot. Like, what did he do for us? And yeah. there are some measurable things that he did for us. Um, as president that uh, people don't generally talk about or know about. You also asked him, Michael, um, how being a, an African-American prepared him for being president, correct? Right. Uh, you know, I think, you know, he, he brought up a list of names and people that he admired from John Lewis to Fannie Lou Hamer. And you know, I think just being a black person in America, it provided him. And he said this, like basically the resolve to kind of endure the, the scrutiny that a president goes through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's real. No, that's great, man. Congratulations on it. Have you had a chance to read the book yet? I am starting on it. I started on it last night, but I hadn't gotten too far into it. Yet. You know, I was having a conversation with someone earlier. And I wonder how you feel about this. You know, Barack Obama um, staked his claim as trying to be emulative of Abraham Lincoln. So he got the House, the Senate and the White House and still was polite, kind of threw Republicans a lifeline. Some people said Democrats at that time, as Democrats often are, were too magnanimous toward Republicans um, in light of the Biden and Harris election, once they take office, and I guess I'm checking news lately, I guess they still going to take office. I know they're trying to <laughs> stop, <laughs> but it changes every minute. Um, uh, does Do you think the Obama approach to dealing with Republicans is going to work this time? I, I know Biden's been talking a lot of kumbaya, but do we just need to vanquish these jokers and this party and their whole lot. What do you think, Michael? I think we do. I don't think Barack Obama could have done it right. Like, so you can't have that kind of mentality as a black person and become president, right? You can't be combative. You, you have to be not necessarily uh, respectable. It's not respectability politics. It is the reality of living 
it like so you know like when you get stopped by a police officer right like you can't do the same thing that a white boy does even if you have the same right and the same is true in politics barack obama can't do what joe biden did or is going to do or he could, has the potential to do because simply because he is a black man and you know even as moderate as Barack Obama was, we saw what that black backlash has wrought us in President Trump. So imagine if he would have, you know, gone whole hog and all in. Imagine what we would have gotten. I don't know what else we could have gotten besides Trump. But, you know, we we know that Barack Obama couldn't do some of the things that a Joe Biden could have done or yeah. could do. That's true. And it's funny you mentioned that because if he had been if he had gone in Malcolm X, if, if Trump is the white lash to Obama, what would the white lash have been if Obama had come in on Malcolm X kind of energy? I don't know. You know, it's amazing. Um, but I think you're right. And and one of the ways I think about it, Michael, it's the Jackie Robinson thing. The, the very first have to be Jackie and turn the other cheek all the time because you're the first and you don't want to look like so whether it's the first african-american or the first woman um the first latino it's kind of but usually the second time around you know you can do a little bit more (laughs) yeah we get to do what we want the second time around but somebody's got to get inside the room or, or open that door for for the next person yeah no question about it you have also written recently about the Kwan Charles case, um, a tragic case. The the images too graphic, and frankly, as disturbing. Maybe not as severe, but as disturbing as Emmett Till. It, it invokes the image of of Emmett Till when you see it. Have we learned anything more about that case in recent days? So uh, I talked to the attorneys yesterday for the family. They told me a couple of things, right? So apparently the woman, this white woman who was last seen with Kawhi and Charles, uh, she's apparently left town. Their investigators confirmed that the neighbors said, saw, you know, they have, they shared pictures with me of her packing up a U-Haul and gassing up leaving town. So uh, I don't know where law enforcement is with that information, but uh, there are reliable reports reports that the woman who uh, the family suspects may have uh, at least known what happened between the last time they they saw him and when he was found dead. Um, She's the only human being that the officers and the, the investigators know he was with, right? So she's left town. Um, the family has demanded a meeting with the uh, Iberia Parish uh, Sheriff's Department. They haven't had a response from the Sheriff's Department. And we also uh, know that the family has lobbied the legislature to one, find out, to lower the standard of what's necessary to issue what they call an Amber Alert, right? To let the public know that a child is missing because one of the things, the strange things about this case is that the police knew he was missing for days and never told the public or the news uh, people about it and never issued an Amber Alert. 
And uh, so they're trying to lower that threshold and trying to get them to rename it uh, to a Kawan alert. So uh, mm-hmm. those are two things, because as they told me, that they can't bring him back, but at least they can affect change going forward. What was the threshold for the Amber alert that prevented anything from happening the way it should have in the first place? Or whatever the police decide. I mean, that's literally it. Uh, the police get to decide when they alert the public or the media about a missing child. And when this woman uh, told the police the day her child was hours after her child went missing, that he was uh, missing from a locked room that was locked from the inside. They said he's probably going gone to a football game. So they get to decide. And as you know, numerous people told me who I interviewed that if it was a white girl, they would have turned the state of Louisiana upside down. Yeah. Yeah. Folks, y'all can Google missing white woman syndrome, MWWS. And it's a thing. It is a real thing. Uh, <laughs> it's Wikipedia, it has its own Wikipedia page. So Michael is is right about that. So do I have this right? He got in the car with someone. Is that the white woman in question or what? Yeah. So, so the white woman had a 17, has a 17 year old son that Kawan knew. The parents have never met this kid, but you know, Kawan, who was reportedly a quiet child, all his friends and his family said he was pretty much quiet, had just moved from the town he was raised in to go live with his father. Uh-huh. And uh, he, the last person who saw him was the only other child that he knew, a black kid in the town. And when the parents said, have you seen Kawan? He was like, well, the last time I saw her, she was with this 17-year-old uh, kid and his mother. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that we found out yesterday is that the Baldwin Police Department, Baldwin, Louisiana Police Department, reportedly has some video of uh, Kawan in the car with this woman. So, mm-hmm. So, yeah, he got we don't know if he got in the car or, you know, he was taken. No, no one really knows. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still a mystery um, trying to get to the bottom of it. Um, Michael, when Trayvon was killed, we all went down to Sanford. I asked the question. um, Whether or not it made any difference to elect a black president if we can't protect the lives of our own children. And as I look, you know, the first black president has his new book coming out and we celebrate that. And yet we're still dealing with trying to make our lives matter, trying to defend our children trying to keep them from being killed, whether by police or whomever. Do you think that, is a somewhat bipolar position for us to be in as black people to, to celebrate Barack Obama. And for that matter, the first black woman in the white house now with Kamala. And yet we're still having Emmett Till like situations in America. So I think the two separate things, I think the election of a black president was a symbolic step forward. It doesn't mean that America was less, less racist than it was on November 7th, 2008. Um, so yeah, I think Barack Obama was 
election was important, it has symbolic importance to black people. I was watching James Baldwin last night and I remember when he said that, uh, you know, when Bobby Kennedy was elected as attorney general and someone said to you, well, you know, in 40 years, we may even see an African-American elected president and white people thought that that was an incredible thing to say. And as James Baldwin said, if you would have gone to Harlem, you know, black people were laughing at it, not because it was improbable, because, but because we know that black people always have been smart enough and talented enough to do it. Bobby Kennedy, like James Baldwin said, just got here yesterday. We've been here for 400 years. And so, you know, I think the strain of America, the specific strain of American racism will sometimes have a hole through which a black person can escape and, and make it to the heights that a Barack Obama made it. But it doesn't mean that the lid isn't still on the ladder to success or the, the heights to which a black person can reach in America. Those are two separate things. And it doesn't, like I always say, Barack Obama was a Harvard Law graduate. Uh, Columbia, he went to Columbia. He was the smartest person at his high school. So it's not necessarily an incredible thing to me to see someone who is smart and talented and charismatic become the president of the United States, right? But like um, what followed him, which shows you the dichotomy of racism in America, is that it's just a regular old mediocre white man with no experience, not particularly smart, be followed the smartest president of our lifetimes, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely mediocre. I mean, he's white trash. Right, right. Uh, mediocre is, is, is giving him credit for a lot, but, yeah. You know, and normally we think of white trash as poor, but, I mean, we don't even, I mean, he, we know he ain't got no money. As far as I'm concerned, you have a billion dollars in debt. You 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 broke <laughs> too, but he's just upper class. And you're right. And I think that's part of the resentment: a black, intelligent, articulate family, and that makes people in Trump world angry because we're not supposed to be that articulate, that intelligent, and that successful. And he and his family clearly are not. We also are seeing this this attitude that Trump has wrought you in, in, in hate crimes going up. You've written about that as well. We got a new report from the FBI, don't we? Right. Uh, the 2019 report. So what happened in 2019 has just been released and it shows that it's the murder, the racist murders doubled between 2018 and 2019. So 2019, 18 had the highest recorded amount of uh, racism related murders on record, which was 24. And in 2019, it was 51. So, you know, there was a huge jump. And that's uh, since, two, since 1990, we've never seen that amount of racism or hate crime related murders. And, uh, you know, we see this anecdotally in society where we see these uh, kinds of issues raised up. And it's, it's interesting that the rise in hate crimes didn't jump that much overall. It is just that like 
it went from white people threatening people to white people actually doing stuff, right? So it went from them talking junk to people to actual simple assault and aggravated assault and murder. So it's not like we got an influx of racism. It's that they were emboldened by something. And I could only guess that it was Trump to actually take one step forward and do the things that were on their minds. Yeah. And, and to literally act on it. And, and a word to the wise, I know some looked at Million MAGA and all this other bluster and wolf tickets they were talking since the election and say, well, he's, they're not really going to do nothing. But Michael's right. They do do things. Uh, they may not do things in the middle of Chocolate City out loud at a Million MAGA march, but they do a lot of other little things. And you all should read Mike, uh, Michael's piece in the report. So, man, um, tell us a bit more about you and, and how you became a writer and how you developed your uh, extraordinary um, writing style, brother. Well, so I grew up in um, in Hartsville, South Carolina, a little town called Hartsville, South Carolina. And uh, I'm, I'm currently writing a book about it. So I interviewed my mother about the book. I was never one who thought that I would ever write a memoir. Uh, it was just kind of self-indulgent to me. But uh, I'm telling the story about race in America. And I'm telling it through the lens of my childhood because it was why well, I eventually found out that it was interesting because I was homeschooled in an all black neighborhood for most of my life uh, until I, well, until I was 13 years old. Right. And so I was my mother. I asked my mother why she did that homeschooled my sisters and I. And she told me that and this is a quote that I'll never forget, that she didn't think a black child could realize his humanity in the presence of whiteness. Right. So she reminds she surrounded us with just blackness. Like it wasn't like I don't remember it being like blackness being a thing that I focused on. It was just like everything around me happened to be black. I would I would it wasn't until I was older that I realized, oh, well, most of the people in the world aren't black. Because I was just surrounded by black people. And so um one, I think it taught me to not just think critically. But the education that she provided was outside of the education curriculum of the American school system. So I didn't I, I never learned to just automatically absorb the things that people told me just because they told me to learn that. Right. So, you know, it, it was a combination of critical thinking and pattern recognition and you know, for all accounts, being a skeptic. Like, I'm a skeptic. When you tell me something, I got to find out if that is true for myself. And so I use that to talk about the lens of whiteness because I never learned. You know, people think I am antagonistic with white people. It is just that I think most people have this subconscious deference to whiteness that we all absorb and learn through osmosis and just living in America, right? And I never learned it. So I talk to white people like I talk to black people like I don't feel the need to, you know, overly enunciate my R's or speak specifically uh, in their tone. So I think a lot of times it comes off as aggressive. Right. Like even when I say white people, like a lot of people take issue with that. And I was like, but you white. And and so 
I, I write about it through that lens. And one of the things that it taught me just reading a lot, like my mom made me into an ad, all of my, my sisters and I into an avid reader, my entire family into avid readers. And I think that it, you know, influences my writing. I was always a fan of stand-up comedy. To me, it is the purest art form and, um, and poetry. So I think that influences my writing. And so I use humor a lot to disarm people and to explain points in a way that makes people relate and absorb them more than just pointing out statistics. Because a lot of people are surprised to find out that my background is in macroeconomics. My, you know, I have a master's in macroeconomics. So I was always uh, an avid reader, but my training is in economics and in, in, in identifying patterns from numbers. Wow. I flunked economics in school, brother. Not my thing. I took that zero. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. So you you were gifted brother and, and clearly quite cerebral. And I was going to ask you, too, about the humor, because the, the humor is great. Um, who are some of the the humorists that have influenced you in your writing? I'm just curious. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, from a kid, I was a big Mark Twain fan. Um, Paul Beatty. Uh, I think, you know, I think it's not just humor, but cultural criticism. I've always uh like Richard Pryor was, I think, like I think Richard Pryor could be argued as the greatest American artist simply because every iteration of stand-up comedy that we see now is kind of a evolution of what he did, right? To, to, from taking reality right. and making it into social commentary that you just happen to laugh at. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Richard Pryor, Paul Beatty, uh, and people like that, um, even, you know, white, even white writers. I, I'm a big fan of Doug Stanhope, the comedian. And so I, I look, I study comedy to, first of all, it's about a precision of words. You know, the best comedians know, have, have an economy of words that make things funny and know how to create analogies. So I think it is a, a, a good form for a writer to study to learn how to use words and analogy and social perception to create a point. Amen. Amen. No, that's great. And I like what you were saying about your mom. It's funny. I was in a conversation with someone recently and this comes up, as you know, from time to time, um, uh, whether what we had in segregation in terms of our own structures and schools and even some semblance of our own educational environment outside of white indoctrinated education, whether that was better. I forget a, a young, younger person was asking me about that. And I, you know, we kind of talked through it. And what your mom said, I think some would consider an argument for what we lacked in the immediate aftermath of desegregation and, and what we still lack today. And I was saying to this uh, young person that Segregation was not sustainable, yet somehow I don't think the movement to desegregate meant that we needed to shut down our own indigenous and inherent institutions. And what your mom was giving you at home is what a lot of folk got in the segregated school. So like, you know, my grandparents and whatnot, they were on a whole nother level of, of awareness 
and and blackness and black intellectualism that, you know, unlike you, I wasn't homeschooled, but I had to get that in an extracurricular <laughs> format as opposed to in school. So you might. Right. Yeah, that's that's the thing that, you know, again, from not from not going to public schools. It. I am often surprised about the things that I don't know, right? Like for instance, it was only recently that I realized, oh, most people get most of their education in schools. Like I didn't realize, I guess just growing up the way that I did that, oh, like the school, even when I went to school, it was like a supplemental education. It wasn't like the people at school didn't teach me. That was a thing that I got. My education was a thing that I got from home. And the stuff that you learned in school was, oh, this is the stuff that white people are going to need you to know. Um, and this is the stuff like, you know, but like I didn't learn how to multiply and divide and add and subtract at school. Right. I didn't learn how to read at school. I didn't learn most of the books that I've ever read in my life were not read in the, because of school. So my education, even in a school setting, was still mostly at home. Like, I, you know, I really, I, I, I always thought, like, I really didn't learn anything in a classroom until probably I was, like, midway through college or in graduate school. Because, yeah. you know, this is, that's the stuff that, to me, in my perception, I've always thought that, oh, they taught you, oh, in case you miss this at home, you should know this. And you should know about this stuff, but it's not like the it's not meant to replace an education. And I say that to to say like when integration happened, it wasn't meant for us to move into white spaces to or to value white spaces more, right? Like the doctors that that HBCUs produced were coming from black schools that were just as good as those white schools, right? Like when you think about, you know, I, I heard Dr. Uh, Greg Carr say uh, this past week that when you think about uh, the Little Rock Nine, you know, they all those students and, and, and the students that desegregated these white schools, they the white schools went and handpicked the best students, right? So those students were being e educated at black schools, and they were so smart that they broke the whole education segregation system in America. Like that's how incredibly smart and, and intelligent that they were. And they were being taught that at black schools who were producing a bunch of that stuff, right? Like there were like eight people who did what Rosa Parks did before Rosa Parks even did it, right? So when we think about, oh, this there was this one crazy, no, nah, it was a bunch of people. And then you finally noticed when the last person did it. Right. But there was a bunch of us thinking that we broke it and it was the collective. We. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it's only in the loss of that community that we made white things more valuable. We made Harvard more valuable than Tuskegee. When like, like who, you know, from Tuskegee, I'm from Harvard that could hold a candle to George Washington Carver. That's right. Or, you know, or, or many of the other black uh, people who went to HBCUs, you know, they produce most of the black PhDs. You know, the person who's trying to figure out the coronavirus is a black woman. Right. 
So these schools didn't give us anything, and these white spaces didn't give us anything that we hadn't already created. What we are, you know, the reason for desegregation is that we knew that it couldn't be separate and equal because we knew that white people gonna, was never going to make the black things equivalent to what they had. So we had to, you know, to equalize it by making them share their spaces with us. But it wasn't never a thing like, like the white stuff was better. That's one of the things that I was arguing with Pete Buttigieg about when he was running for president. Like, no, you don't say we need more role models in black neighborhoods. We need to show them the way, bruh, that is not true. Like, don't even start that argument because it's dangerous to perpetuate it. When the reality is, if you gave us the stuff you have, we'll be out. You ain't got to teach us how to value education. You ain't got to give us no role models. You ain't got to have nobody to show us the way. Give us some of the stuff that you have and we'll be fine. And we'll be fine. No, you're absolutely right. That's why it's, it's, it's not to believe the point, but it's gratifying, isn't it, to see some of the top athletes now going back to HBCUs. You know, have, have you noticed that? Yeah. And, and and that's because I've always felt, too, the competition would be over. If HBCUs had the same television contracts and coverage that the white schools when it comes to athletics, because these white schools make that money off the athletic programs. If we had the same opportunity and could be seen on people's televisions and apps like the white schools are. It'd be a whole different ball game, no pun intended. And I'm glad some of these young black people um, are deciding to go back to HBCUs. Because I, because to the point I was making earlier, I think it's this generation more than ever. This these up these up and coming Gen Zers who would benefit greatly by going back to the roots, so to speak, when it comes to getting that education, so that we are clear and they are they are clear. Uh, better yet. Um, about what it's really all about and get the foundation that your mother gave you and that others of us got at HBCU. So no, that's, that's important. Lastly, brother, when did you find out that you are an Ethiopian king and the last one remaining? Well, I, I love the word uh, niggas because first of all, you're correct. Like niggas is, uh, is non-gender specific, right? So it's a king or a queen, both are a negress. And, uh, <laughs> and I've always advocated for the use of the word because it describes us more aptly than any other word to me. Like I am a negress. I am uh, the royalty from Africa that you try to make into something despicable like the N-word, right? Mm-hmm. So... Love it. So I'm the last real niggas alive, and you are too, and everybody else is too. Amen. I like that. I, if you don't mind, I'm gonna volunteer to help you spread that and change this this wording that we use around. I think that's. I love that. That's that's wonderful, folks. Um, no stranger to anyone. This brother's very popular. Read his latest pieces that we've discussed today, and he's putting stuff out pretty regularly. A, a dynamic brother. Uh, he makes us all think and smile as well. And it's very, very critical, especially in these times. So while this um, plague is picking back up, 
and you're home during the holidays, stay home uh, and catch up on your Michael Harriet at theroot.com. Michael, thank you, my brother. Thank you for having me. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. Please remember to listen, like, subscribe. And wherever you get your podcasts, please give the show a five-star rating. And please do spread the word. Let's all continue to pray for each other during this pandemic and this police-demic. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit score grows, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Bill Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.